This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, the podcast that is R-rated but with plausible deniability. HMOD is a barely legal podcast about sex, culture, politics, and legal regulation hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and produced by David Slavik. This interview is the second in a series about the relationship between feminism, activism and humor, academic freedom, and the regulation of conduct in professional spaces, and the adjudication of harassment and bullying complaints in the Me Too era. Richard Ned Lebeau is a professor of international political theory in the Department of War Studies at King's College London and a fellow of the British Academy. He is also James O. Friedman, Presidential Professor Emeritus at Dartmouth, Dartmouth College and a bi-fellow of Pembroke College at the University of Cambridge. During the Carter administration, Professor Lebeau served as a scholar-in-residence in the Central Intelligence Agency. Professor Lebeau teaches and researches in the areas of international relations, war and strategy, and conflict prevention and management, among others. He is the author of hundreds of academic articles and several books, including Franz Ferdinand Lives, A World Without World War I, and Goodbye Hegemony, Power and Influence in the Global System, both published in 2014. Professor Lebeau is the respondent in the so-called Elevator Gate controversy that began one year ago at the annual conference of the International Studies Association, which was being held in San Francisco. During the conference, he found himself in a crowded hotel elevator. Someone in the elevator asked everyone for their floor requests. Professor Lebeau asked for the ladies' lingerie floor. Simona Sharoni, a professor in women's and gender studies at Merrimack College, was also in that elevator. Based on Professor Lebeau's joke, she filed a formal complaint against him with the ISA, alleging a violation of the association's code of conduct. The Association's Committee on Professional Rights and Responsibilities found him in violation of the code. Professor Lebeau appealed that decision and lost. The fallout from this incident has been heavy and widespread, pitting feminist academics against others who are more skeptical of their recent proliferation of codes of conduct in academic and professional contexts worldwide. To date, the president of the ISA, Patrick James of the University of Southern California, has not responded to my requests for comment. If you haven't heard my interview with Professor Sharoni, check out the podcast's last episode titled Dirty Lingerie. If you like the pod, please take a moment to give it a five-star rating and maybe even a review. Here is my interview with Ned Lebeau. Lay out, in your own words, what the facts of the case in question are. All right, I'm happy to do that. I was at the ISA, the International Studies Association, meeting last year in San Francisco. I went into an elevator to go up to my room. I almost always walk flights of stairs, but this was nine or ten flights up, so I took the the lift. 
Uh, it filled up very rapidly because panels had just uh, finished. I was moved to the back of the elevator. I was actually pressing against the wall. Somebody up front asked for floors that could be pressed. I had already pressed mine. Uh, I blurted out ladies' lingerie. I think in retrospect, I did it because I was feeling somewhat claustrophobic in this elevator and this released a little tension. Uh, uh, this is an old gag line. Uh, my youngest son said it's actually not the worst joke his father has ever told. It was commonly used in days when elevators had operators and they would call out what was in department stores. Ladies lingerie was always one of the items called. It since was picked up. Most recently, it's been in Harry Potter and other movies. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly innocent, if mindless, uh, gag. I didn't think anything of it. Uh, the next day, I received an email from Mark Boyer, the executive director of ISA, uh, telling me that uh, Professor Simona Sharoni had complained about my behavior, that she was lodging a formal complaint against me with the ISA. He copied me what Professor Sharoni had written, which was not accurate uh, by my recollection of what happened. Um, she alleges I said women's underwear. In fact, I said ladies' lingerie, which is the whole point of, of the gag. Uh, she says she was calling out the floors to be pushed, but it was a male voice I heard. I was all the way in the back. She says she was in the front, and she alleges that she could see the smirk on my face after I said ladies' lingerie. There were so many people in that lift that there was no way she could have seen me, let alone any expression on my face. She further alleged in her complaint that all my buddies laughed. Um, I didn't know anybody in the elevator, and as I didn't know her and she didn't know me, she would have no way of knowing who I knew and whom I didn't know. So from the get-go, uh, much of this was, uh, was make-believe uh, for whatever reason. So I, I wrote back to Mark and I said, surely this is a frivolous complaint that shouldn't go to the ethics committee. Uh, if anything, uh, we should meet and try to reach some, uh, you know, informal accommodation, which is in fact what the ISA bylaws insist that the executive director must do before sending any complaint to, to the um, ethics committee. Uh, and if, informal resolution fails, the bylaws then say some kind of mediation should be tried. Only if that fails does it go to the ethics committee if the executive director deems it a worthwhile complaint. I took it upon myself to email Professor Sharoni, despite uh, Mark Boyer telling me in a second email that I had to uh, treat this entirely confidential. And I wrote back to him and I said, by what right do you insist that I have to remain silent about the way in which I'm being pilloried and tried? He then emailed back and said, well, we really can't stop you from speaking out. So I sent an email to Professor Sharoni saying, look, I'm terribly sorry if in any way I, I offended you. It wasn't my intent. 
I had discovered, I looked her up, I didn't know who she was before, that she had not grown up in an English-speaking country. So I explained the context of my remarks and how it was not in any way uh, intended to be insulting to women. I suggested to her that if she pursued the complaint with the ISA, that many people would consider it frivolous and that she would be handing opponents of feminism and women's rights a weapon to go after them, that what she did might be damaging to the goal that surely we both sought. She then wrote a second letter of complaint to Mark Boyer when I was censored for what the ISA Ethics Committee said was offensive and inappropriate behavior. They said that my email to her was even more offensive and inappropriate. Uh-huh. The issue went viral. Uh, it was picked up in the press and the other media on both sides of the Atlantic and even in the Atlantic, which did an article excoriating ISA for their procedures. Uh, I received no reply after four months to my appeal. Uh, a barrister here in London wrote a letter for me, uh, full of veil threat and innuendo, which flushed out ISA. They rejected my appeal. In the letter rejecting it, the president of the association, Patrick James, wrote that the bylaws of the association were merely guidelines, uh, which made me think that uh, I wonder what would happen if I told that to a policeman who had stopped me for speeding. They further alleged that anybody had an absolute right to determine what speech was offensive. And here, too, I had written in my appeal, consider the counterfactual, that I had said evolution in the lift, that a creationist uh, was shocked and had made a complaint to the ISA. You and I know that this complaint would have been laughed out of court, and indeed uh, Professor Sharoni's complaint should have as well. I just want to follow up on a, a, a few points, not so much of clarification, but just to flesh the matter out a little bit more. This joke, as you noted, um, is kind of a, an old-fashioned joke or even a sort of cultural trope, right? Yes, that's right. So could yeah. you say a little bit more? Of, and it was actually funny. I should say I, um, I was attending a, a conference a couple of days ago where I had to um, introduced a keynote speaker and I was speaking to colleagues afterwards and I had said to a few of them, oh, I'm, I'm doing this series and it relates to the elevator gate. And they were all <laughs> ISA members who, who hadn't actually, uh, who happened to be in Toronto and came along to this event and hadn't actually heard of elevator gate and were sort of, they, they were all lawyer academic types as well. And so we're, 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 you know, quite shocked and dismayed because, you know, uh, legal academics are very concerned with things like process, as you know. And it was funny because one of my female colleagues said, oh, and her, her father is a, a professor at a um, renowned institution in the in the U.S., right? And he's a history professor. And apparently he thinks that's one of his funniest yet corniest lines. <laughs> so, so if you could just speak a little bit more for those pe- those of us who or those listeners who may be listening and either, you know, aren't from the same generation or, as you noted, might not be from the same cultural context. Yes. So the it's a very um, well-known gag line in both the United States and in Great Britain. Uh, 
and it goes back to days when elevators were manually operated, which was certainly the case when, when I was growing up in the 1940s. In department stores, the elevator operator would call out um, what was on sale on particular floors. And one of the items that was always called out was ladies' lingerie. This was picked up by comics used on television, uh, all in sort of innocent ways, and it became quite a trope here in Britain um, as well. More recently, it's in a variety of movies, uh, including one of the Harry Potter movies. And surely a movie made for children would not have included something that uh, was considered culturally off-color or of a questionable nature. Uh, as my youngest son said, he said, well, it's not the worst joke um, his dad has ever told, uh, but certainly one of the more innocuous ones. <laughs> Um, yeah, it just, it sort of immediately brings to mind my childhood when I, I would sit with my grandmother and she would chain smoke and watch, uh, are you being served on a, on a loop basically? <laughs> okay. So, so then a related, a related question would be at the time that you said it, you did, you did note a few minutes ago that you do suffer from, um, a little bit of claustrophobia. And so one Sort of looking back, one explanation might have been that you were relieving tension. Was well, there, I think that's right. Was there any sense at once? Because I, I, I mean, I myself and I have quite a big mouth, and I'll um, <laughs> often put my foot in it. And, so, and, and <laughs> don't we? Don't we all from? Time yeah, and sometimes that's in class <laughs> or you know wherever. And and I and sometimes you know you say something and you immediately feel oh maybe maybe that didn't quite come off not correctly, notwithstanding my intentions or, or lack of them. Did you have any of that sense at the time or? Yeah. yeah. So I, I said this and after I said it, uh, it occurred to me that I was saying this because I was feeling a little claustrophobia. And then when I left the lift, it occurred to me, well, I hope nobody misunderstood what I said um, because I did recognize when I got out that um, after all, uh, people in the lift were younger. They're a different generation, in some cases, maybe even two generations uh, younger. And perhaps uh, they didn't understand the context in which I meant it. But I, I thought in any case, it was so innocuous that um, the thought left my mind. I went about my business. In Professor Sharoni's account, which you were very well acquainted with, of course, she says that it was a, a packed elevator um, full of men and that it, there were only two women. She recalls only two women being on the elevator, one of them herself and the other, a younger female colleague who she later discovered was a, uh, I believe, a PhD or postdoctoral student. Did did you at all have any sense of the composition of the elevator in your recollection? Well, there was no reason why I would have counted gender, age, race, or anything else in the elevator. You know, it was just filled with members of the ISA. I have no idea how many women there were. And I frankly um, don't believe what Professor Sharoni said in her complaint at the end. She alleges that she and this other woman got out of the uh, lift and they conferred with one another. And this younger woman who's never been identified, who's never come forward, uh, alleges that she was shocked 
that I had said this, and the two of them commiserated with each other for not saying something at the time, but they were too shocked to speak. Come on. So I'm thinking back to the the, the time of the 2018 ISA conference where you were mm-hmm. all in San Francisco, and that was a, almost a year ago now. We were really at the height of Me Too uh, activity, <laughs> let's yeah. say. Yeah. And we remain very much in the height, but I, I began myself writing about Me Too like in November 2017. So I remember by May, there were already some scholars and thinkers sort of beginning to become critical of various aspects of the movement, but it was still still a quite a touchy moment as it remains. Has there been any other contexts professionally, either at ISA or in your general university and sort of public life, where you've noticed marked either changes in reactions or discussions about professional conduct, including, I mean, I know that that's quite a wide question, but including relating to humor, but maybe maybe other matters as well. Well, I certainly remember the McCarthy era and the chilling effect that it had on freedom of speech, of humor, and of um, freedom of expression. Uh, There have been other periods. However, I think that this is the most uh, uh, serious assault uh, since the right-wing anti-communist movement of the 1950s, which, of course, had a continuation in the 1960s, particularly when the civil rights and um, anti-war movement uh, developed. Uh, One of the things I find interesting about this case uh, is that um, (laughs) you could couch me as an anti-Harvey Weinstein. So, I have now finished my 53rd year of university teaching. I have a reputation for teaching, mentoring, helping women students and colleagues, uh, helping them get jobs and publish, and doing this uh, long before it became routine in the profession. Uh, Nobody has ever charged me with misogyny or of any other kind of misbehavior in the course of this academic career. Uh, Large numbers of women, many of them senior women, and a couple of them uh, former presidents of the ISA, wrote to the president of the current president of the ISA and to the executive and ethics committee uh, saying that uh, this is the wrong person you're going after. Uh, One of them actually sent me a copy of the email, said if all men were like Ned, we wouldn't be having these kinds of problems. Uh, That obviously had no effect whatsoever on Shironi, and that I understand, but on the ethics committee and executive committee. And these people uh, should be uh, responsible scholars who share a commitment to freedom of speech, to free expression, uh, to humor, And remember now that this is an international association that focuses, among other things, on conflict management and prevention. The first thing that they would say professionally is you don't start shooting. You try to resolve issues by diplomacy, by talk. The ISA leadership went right to war and, I think, against uh, 
an innocent victim in this case. Now, I, I, I don't know what their motives are. I can't read uh, into other people's minds what might have uh, motivated them. Um, I, I do know that uh, this is not the first controversial incident with which Professor Sharoni is associated. Uh, the ISA knew her well from past experience, which, to my way of thinking, makes their behavior even more inexplicable. There's a way in which I think what has happened, and and it may not be resolved, I'll ask you about that in a moment, but what has happened to date has been really unsatisfactory for sort of both sides here, for lack of a better way of putting putting together mm-hmm. what's happening. And so part of what Professor Sharoni said to me, and this is all unedited in my my previous episode where I interviewed her. So she she found the ISA code of conduct, which had gone into effect as of uh, the date just before the 2018 conference. She found that code of conduct to be lacking because according to her, it was not sufficiently survivor-centric in, in its orientation and drafting. Hey, but can I, may I interrupt for just yes, one please. second? Sure. One of, the, one of the other things that offended me was her continued use of survivor, both in her complaint and in her subsequent um, interviews. Um, I associate survivor in a very different context this language of being a survivor and, a, and an institutional policy not being survivor-centric enough on her side. And then what I hear on your side is that the policy A is just mechanically ill thought out and also was not applied accordingly. I want to talk to you about the freedom of speech, but I find that really interesting because so both of you coming, so you both have criticisms of the, the policy isn't satisfying anyone. It's not satisfying even the most radical of feminists because it's not survivor-centric. And on the other hand, it's not satisfying those of us who might be really concerned with fair procedure. And a lawyer would generally use the term due process. And as you may have noticed over the past year, year and a half, due process has actually become a kind of dirty word. It's become a bit of a dog whistle that's been deployed by more conservative and right-wing forces to signal that we aren't to take something seriously. And that's really, I've, and I've said this for a long time, I find that extraordinarily it, unfortunate because... Yes, but it doesn't mean that due process isn't something that should no, be precisely. followed. Yeah, just because one side of the political spectrum has decided to weaponize that language doesn't mean that Correct. those of us who actually believe in fairness need to go along with that weaponization. I'm constantly trying to take trying to take back this ground that I feel like more reasonable reasonable people have actually ceded in ways that they shouldn't have. And so and and what I'm just trying to say there is that due process just means fairness. That's it. That, that's and, right. And if you um, if you demonize due process and somehow deprive it of its legitimacy, uh, we'll all become victims. Precisely. I'm really interested by, so a couple of things that pull on this issue of freedom of speech, because as you know, freedom of speech is another other interesting, uh, how can I say, it? a concept and also an ideal, right? A, a really core mm-hmm. ideal of democracy. Absolutely. And it's something as well that I find has been disturbingly taken hold of and weaponized by, by conservatives and by the right in in ways that are concerning. And so I'm glad, on one level, I'm very glad that in your writing and reflecting um, on your experience with this incident that you've 
persisted in saying, actually, we need to understand this as a freedom of speech issue and, and what that means in part because you're an academic and a public intellectual is that you're committed to academic freedom and that academic freedom is not something that can be swept under under the rug in the way that, that it has been in your case. As you know, when we talk about freedom of speech in the legal sense, what we're referring to is a right that the government provides to us in that only government limitations of that right are ones that subjected to legal and constitutional scrutiny. And if it's a private organization that here in Toronto, a couple of weeks ago, there's this case of these anti-vaxxer crazy people, right? You think that vaccines are killing children mm -hmm. or those guys had had a... a it's just the no vaccines that are killing children. They had a big poster campaign and they had hired a, like in a, some ad agency to do their postering. Mm -hmm. And the ad agency rightly was subjected to a lot of public pressure saying that this was actually a public health mm -hmm. problem. They were causing a public health problem. And then they took down the posters mm -hmm. and then everybody was, everybody on the right was saying, no, free speech, free speech. And then what they don't understand is that it's not actually a free speech issue because a private corporation like the ad agency is perfectly entitled to say oh, whatever they want absolutely. to say. And you, you understand that. Freedom of speech. So freedom of speech is always very hard to explain yes. to people. The, the classic study was done in Florida back in the 1950s and has been replicated uh, any number of times since. Um, a political scientist and psychologist did a survey asking people um, if they believed in freedom of speech. And they asked several questions about freedom of speech and almost everybody was a firm supporter of freedom of speech. The last question on the survey said, do you think it is perfectly all right to prevent a communist from speaking at your school? And overwhelmingly people said yes. So they're all in favor of freedom of speech except when it comes to ideas that they oppose. So that being said, you're wanting to hold on to freedom of speech as part of harm that, that you see is happening to you is actually opposite. Here's the, the crux of the question. I had wrote my first critical piece on the way that Me Too narratives were being told in the media at the beginning of Me Too at a time when no one would publish it except the Toronto Sun. <laughs> not a place you'd want to I be mean, published you know it's yeah it's not it, it's canada it's not you know alt-right or anything like that but it's it's libertarian myself politically and very firmly on the left and the piece was clearly yes. on the left so, and i i decided mm -hmm. to go with it anyway to publish there because i thought it was an important piece people would read it and in fact maybe even some people that i'm not normally aligned with politically would read it and then hopefully that might not be a bad thing well, and you reach a different audience this yeah, way. Yeah, that's what I was thinking at the time. And I was surprised and dismayed when some of my colleagues said, well, you know, I asked their opinion on the piece and they and they said, well, I just, of course, I, I haven't read it because I don't read the Toronto Sun. So I had something yeah, similar Yeah, so I want to Britain. ask you about Quillette. Both, yeah, well, let's, before we get sure. to Quillette, the, the Spectator, which is conservative but respectable. Absolutely. And the, and the Daily Mail, which is conservative and somewhat less um, respectable, both um, interviewed me and then both asked me to write pieces. And it's clear that the spectator wanted me to attack the left and feminists. Mm. And I wrote a piece that attacked assaults on freedom of speech, whether they came from the right or the left, and gave examples 
on both sides. They published the piece without asking me to change the tone or any of the words in it, and so did the Daily Mail. So, in effect, by publishing in these uh, um, outlets that don't necessarily reflect my own political views, I was able to make a case for my political views, but more fundamentally for the dialogue that enables the expression of political views. Uh, I think that uh, this is well worth the effort. That gives the whole thing even more context, because I often hear, you know, I'll be listening to whatever left-wing radio show I happen to be listening to on the subway in the mm-hmm. morning. And there is an, a real sense of anger that happens when, especially academics, when academics, I mean, I think that publishing under pseudonyms in Quillette is totally silly and, and bad, but yeah, well, no, I, didn't I know. So, under it, no, precisely, precisely. Yeah. So I just want to bracket right. that. I think when academics pretend right. that they're being, you know, so marginalized that they can't use their names, I mean, I think that's nonsense. But that's not yeah. what you did. This, this, this is publicity. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think the question then is like, but but people still get mad when people publish in Quillette, and I just think that's such a, a really, um, it's an impoverished way of thinking about working through these difficult issues you know and and there's in, in other, and i think their concern would be something like the following that quillette makes fringe ideas palatable to reactionaries because those reactionaries are predisposed to think of academia as being about you know a, a ivory tower of elitism and narrow-mindedness or something and that quillette will publish then publish academics who are being you know somehow operating at the margins and don't feel like they can operate anywhere else. Now that I think that's the narrative that that people on the left would be concerned about. And I'm just wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about about I'm sure you've had to respond to that in the past. Well, no, actually, I haven't. Interestingly, Uh, nobody sent me an email or a complaint about where I have uh, described what has happened to me. Uh, the only complaints I've received have been uh, Sharoni and ISA allege that I've started a campaign of publicity against them. And, 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 and that's not true. Uh, in fact, it was a couple of senior women in the association who contacted Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post, which carried the first story. It then went out on an AP line. Uh, I knew nothing about the AP line. I did speak to Ruth Marcus when she when she emailed me, and then the story had a life of its own. Uh, so it ended up being carried in a whole range of places, and that may be why uh, people haven't criticized me. But I, I think there's a more fundamental issue um, at stake here, and that is that uh, here you have. Uh, what has been in the past a marginalized group, and that's certainly true of women. They've been the object of discrimination and prejudice for millennia. They're beginning to come out, come out of this in Western societies, and it is tragic that one small faction of women now want to use what power they have to abuse others in the same way they were abused in the past. And alas, uh, it's not limited to women. It's almost any group that has felt themselves the underdog 
uh, once they achieve a degree of power, many of them very quickly begin to behave in exactly the way they condemned when they were underdogs. And that's something that we, we need to resist. And when they behave this way, it has a chilling effect. So the reason why I was concerned with fighting this issue and why I refused to capitulate to ISA was my younger colleagues already have to self-censor themselves. Uh, if ISA, and I'm sure that this is what Professor Sharoni had in mind when she made her complaint, if ISA can censor and punish me, a very senior, respected member of the profession who was their outstanding scholar of the year two years before, then younger people get the message they have to censor themselves even more. And this is what I'm opposed to. And it doesn't matter whether the thread is from the right or the left or the center. That's Again, that's so helpful because I think part of the narrative that I heard when I zoomed around ISA a couple of days ago and, and also that I think was embedded in part of Professor Shoney and others' comments was um, – Exactly the flip of that, that in some way, if, if, and so I think the, the idea with not naming the younger woman who was in the elevator, et cetera, was that she was kind of um, protecting uh, young female yeah, academics. Right. Yeah, young female academics. Yeah, so she, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's so concerned with protecting young academics. Give me a break. And I think what you've just said is really interesting and, and, and needs to be said as well that you know what those of us who like myself don't have tenure yet we're just we're just a couple of years mm-hmm. into our jobs and I, I you know we do feel the pressure to conform to prevailing sensibilities and that might be for a radical feminist that might mean conforming to you know pressure from older male academics but it also might mean conforming to pressures just to not speak up when you when or to censor yourself so i think it, it plays yes. in both ways and i think it's really important to to note the the double-sidedness of that concern I, I, that's that's true I, what, what else is interesting just to follow up on my concern for uh, my, my younger colleagues, uh, I was prepared to spend the money to go to court to sue um, ISA and Sharoni. I consulted, this was when my appeal was denied, I consulted a very prominent uh, litigator in the U.S. who took a few days to get back to me because he said he surfed uh, the Internet to see what was out there. Uh, He said, Ned, he said, I don't think you have a case. And I said, why is that? He said, well, they've certainly violated their bylaws and you were denied due process. There's no doubt about that. But the lawsuit, to make any sense, would have to be for defamation of character. Mm -hmm. And you have to show that you suffered some loss as a result of what they did. In fact, from seeing what's online and what's in the media, your reputation has improved and theirs has absolutely plummeted. So he said, in fact, there's no, there's no legal case. <laughs> so that leads me to the next question, which is to, which is to ask sort of um, where do things stand now, if at all? So, so you're not going forward with the And defamation suits are, of course, extremely costly and difficult to prove, as you know. No. They are, and nobody likes going to court in any Certainly case. Certainly not. Like you have other things. No. 
I, you know, the years I have left in my life, I'd like to devote to pleasant things. The, the process just to get, get us up to speed is you've just refused to apologize. And I, I, they've sent you a reprimand. They've denied your appeal. And so are you just staying away from the LSA? Or? So let, 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 let's be clear about what they demanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't ask for a simple apology. In my way of thinking, I already apologized to uh, Sharoni in my initial, my only email to her. What they want is for me to acknowledge in writing to them and to her that what I said was offensive and inappropriate, and that I refused to do because it wasn't. So that's where things stand on my side. I made my case perfectly clear to everyone uh, in my interviews with the media. And as I noted to you a moment ago, the legal redress didn't seem a reasonable course of action to Mm -hmm. pursue. So I withdrew from it. I also hoped that the people who were very upset by what had happened, that I must have received over a thousand emails from around the world, uh, beginning with members of the ISA, but extending to other people who heard about this uh, through the media. Every single one uh, was supportive of me. I think there were two that suggested I should just apologize and get it over with, uh, but that was the extent of, of the criticism. I also uh, heard from people in the ISA that there was enough unhappiness about anger even at what had happened that uh, they would try to raise it in the business meeting and change the bylaws of the association. Uh, When I heard that, I decided that that was all the more reason for me to keep a very low profile, not to make this any kind of eyeball to eyeball confrontation between me and the director, rather to step back, uh, let people think about the issues involved rather than the personalities and address it in a professional way. Um, I don't know whether that's happened because for obvious reasons, I stayed away from ISA this year. I will just note, I reached out twice this week, to the president of the ISA, and he has ignored me both times. Uh, well, why? I'm not yeah, I mean, interesting colleague on a colleague to colleague basis. But So tell me, uh, th- there was a panel on this issue at ISA? Yeah. My next question was just to follow up a, a little bit on uh, the responses, that, mostly, as you noted, of support that you had from people kind of near and far to your mm-hmm. life, which is um, which is great. And I, and I should note as well that my, my next door neighbor colleague um, at Osgood, I was telling her that I was interviewing you and she thought, oh, my goodness, when I was a doctoral student at NYU, I reached out to Professor LeBeau and he, we had this wonderful exchange. And I'm sure he doesn't remember, but but he was wonderful to me. And she was also she's a, a young Oh, a young nice. female colleague as well. So just to, to put that out there. So the media response, because part of what, what actually came up at the panel at ISA this, this year that I attended, that was about dealing with online backlash to feminist mm-hmm. activism. Like, um, and that included, but also went beyond Sharoni's complaint. Media response was a large part of that panel, and it was it also figured prominently in my discussion with Professor Sharoni. And part of what she lamented was not just the incident, but the response to it. Re- response to it by the media. Yeah, well, not by the formal media, but by people tweeting at her or sending her online, like, uh, hate emails, this kind of thing. Apparently, she was in subject. Do we have evidence of that? Part of the question would, would be to ask for evidence. So she, she did show some of us some emails on some slides. And then there was 
strikingly to me um, at that panel, there was an uh, an art installation on the side of the room. So so when I went into the you know the hotel room at the downtown Sheraton Conference Center, they mm-hmm. the panelists were in the process of putting up um I have pictures of it I can send to you, but we're in the process of putting up a kind of uh, clothesline type thing where, and they were pinning pictures and, and lingerie to it. <laughs> and, and these were people on the panel associated with yes, the panel yeah, or this was an yeah. entire, I see. And it was, and it was, so there were like uh, bras and panties with, and they had taken some st- things that had been purportedly sent to professor Sharoni calling her like a, a dumb cunt and this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and pasted them on, on the lingerie and pasted, you know, uh, they had also included various media articles, et cetera. And so it was this kind of art installation thing. And the, the idea was that she, part of her victimization, um, a large part of it apparently was the aftermath of interaction that she had had sort of from the media. And so it seems for her at least to be this story of ongoing online misogynist interaction, which I just wanted to kind of put to you. Well, look, I, 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 what can I say? I'm opposed to trolls of all kinds, right? People both have a right to express an opinion and not to be vilified and punished for it. So Professor Sharoni has a right to say whatever she wants, and it's deeply offensive if people threaten her in any way. Now, it's not offensive in any way if people disagree with her or tell her that they think that she's acting unwisely. And I know that that's the gist of the contents of the emails she received, because I'd say about a third of the emails I received were addressed to both of us. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you actually did see some of that. I, I, I've seen at least a couple of hundred emails that have been sent to her. Oh, goodness. Okay, interesting. And I didn't find any of those emails. There were no threats. There were people who strongly disagreed. There were people who said what she was doing uh, uh, was was foolish and offensive. There were people who said that what she's doing is damaging to the women's movement. Uh, there were people who called her a snowflake, uh, which is certainly not a term of endearment, but hardly threatening. Right. I saw nothing of a threatening nature. Now, mind you, uh, it's quite likely that if there were trolls, they didn't CC me. Right, right. Interesting. The yeah. last formal question then for for the episode would be clearly I think it's clear to anybody who's who's taken you know five minutes to peruse the information and documents available in this case that serious substantive issues that probably weren't resolved right but but also really serious procedural issues and oh indeed there are and so I'm just wondering and if not and I, I hate to ask this question in a way because I'm always the I'm meant to be the critical law professor who says you know we can <laughs> it's your job, yeah, not mine. Precisely. Yeah, we need to. <laughs> You're the expert on this. So, so I always say, you know, to students, I, I want you to sit and I want you to study how power gets distributed through law. And I want you to resist the urge right. to come up with like the right answer. You know, <laughs> nevertheless, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to perform the sort of frustrated first year law student looking at me in class for you and say, 
if you, what are your thoughts, if any, and it's totally fine if you don't have any, what, what are your thoughts, if any, about how professional associations, but actually really academic associations should go about dealing with adjudicating complaints of harassment and bullying, whether, the, whether they're gender-based or, or not? All right. So I, let me note that I'm married to a lawyer. And, oh, so you don't get out of jail free then on this question. <laughs> no. And, and also um, a lawyer who long ago, back in the 1980s, wrote a book about sexual assault on the campus, trying to uh, bring to attention the universities, two universities, that the way in which they were responding to complaints about rape and other sexual issues were um, making matters worse for the victims, um, not better. Uh, so I, I've been aware of this problem for a long time. And one of the things that uh, seems to me has happened uh, is that uh, we know historically in Western countries that complaints to the police about rape often don't get very far. And when prosecutors are told take up rape cases, that they get a fairly low rate of conviction. And this is one of the reasons why universities became more proactive and developed procedures for addressing these issues uh, themselves. These administrators and faculty who do this, a lot of them are lawyer wannabes. And... They know less about the law. They end up violating due process. They end up committing new offenses while they're trying to avoid the old ones. So the pendulum, in some ways, has swung from one extreme to the other. And it's not good for victims, and it's not good for people who are falsely accused of being perpetrators. Uh, and when you have something like this, then everybody loses and respect for the law declines. Some people ask whether it's actually the place of the academy, right, as it were, to even be adjudicating these sorts of claims. It's not. They're not qualified to right. do it. My own opinion is I really worry a lot about the ability of universities to deal with actual sexual assault cases, for sure. I, mm -hmm. I, my, my sense is that those should generally be left to the police, although I'm, you know, very unsatisfied with the criminal justice system in general, I should say. Correct. But then we should be improving the criminal Precisely. justice system, not trying to create an alternative. Absolutely. The question as it's put to us in this Me Too era, however we want to call it, the question that's put to mm -hmm. us is what do we do in professional spaces with situations, and I'm not talking about your situation now, which, but, but imagine something that could be considered by a reasonable person to be offensive, but yet is clearly not violating the criminal law, right? We're talking about a speech act now. It could be a speech act. Assuming there was no physical contact, it would, yeah, I mean, it would have to be something like a speech act broadly construed. I think you're right about that. Right. So look, I, I tell you my view of this. So I remember uh, an era when people frequently told racial jokes about African-Americans, anti-Semitic jokes. No, it was all acceptable to do this kind of thing. And the way it began to change were people saying, this is unacceptable. Uh, do you realize what you're saying? No. Are, are, are you a racist? Is this how you want us to think of you? Uh, 
that has some impact. Uh, this kind of informal uh, sanctioning by civil society. That, to me, is a more sensible way of going. Uh, it also recognizes that there's change over time in what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, that these changes are always controversial, mm -hmm. that they don't work if one group tries to ram a rule or a constraint down the throats of another. It has to be something that gets solidified through a combination of legal precedent mm -hmm. and social consensus. Uh, and in this sense, um, the ISA is behaving in just the opposite way. <laughs> I just have one more thought. If they were smart, you know, the ISA, people who run the organization, would have organized several panels to examine these kinds of issues from both a scholarly and public policy perspective, mm -hmm. invited people who had done research on it and others who had opinions to express. They could have made it a plenary panel in which the membership as a whole was you know, in a large room invited to attend. That would have been the sensible way for a professional organization to behave. And what this organization did was to censor me, to try to keep my censor secret. I refused to play along with them. They then got furious when it made the press, and they looked terrible for their behavior. They kicked my appeal into the long grass and would not have responded had I not uh, threatened them with legal action. And now they're pretending that nothing has happened. Part of what Professor Sharoni told me when we sat down a couple of days ago was that she because I asked her about the, the part of the code in question, which encourages informal interpersonal resolution of these matters, as opposed to ratcheting up the situation. And she, she just looked at me and she, she said, I know I don't consider this an interpersonal issue and I refuse to deal with it on that basis. And they let her define matters for them because she refused. They refused right. rather than say, rather than saying, look, if you're not prepared to meet with them and have a discussion, we're certainly not going to bring this before the ethics mm -hmm. committee. And so what I hear you saying is that, you know, any responsible, especially an academic and professional organization would encourage sort of a plethora of speech in the absence of actual adjudicatory or, or even punitive measures, which, which you were. Yeah. Yes. And, and debate among its membership about what's acceptable, what's not and why. And people might learn things from such a discourse. Mm -hmm.